0: Since the High Holidays, we've been going through a sermon series through the book of Matthew. And a few weeks ago, we began unpacking what is often called the Sermon on the Mount, looking at it from its first century Jewish context. We discussed how Yeshua's three-chapter-long sermon is really a halachic discourse. It's a legal discourse using halachic formulas and ideas common from the Second Temple period, Kizontai. We also discussed how Yeshua as one man Israel, is an embodiment of the Jewish people and that his life parallels Israel's experience. And we also discussed how the Sermon on the Mount parallels the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. The Sermon on the Mount is a three-chapter-long sermon. And today we are in the second half of that chapter 7, focusing on Yeshua's concluding instructions, which all fall under the theme of discernment, or as my friend Rabbi Barney Kasden summarized this section, the wise disciple. It's interesting. I never really read them together until I was preparing for this sermon and realized all these instructions really fall under the first couple verses. So let's delve into this. The opening verses focus on this idea of the narrow gate. In chapter, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, where it says, Go in through the narrow gate, for the gate that leads to destruction is wide, And the road broad, and many travel it. But it is a narrow gate and a hard road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This final section is all about applying discernment, and that a righteous path is also a narrow one. Although it is easy to absorb the thinking that all paths lead to God, that's not the Bible's position or the words of Yeshua. In fact, Yeshua states later in verse 24, so everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be a sensible person. It's about following in the ways of God. That the fruit that we do, their actions speak louder than words. That it's not necessarily, yes, you have to have belief, but if your belief doesn't lead to a life change, then it's not really a true Repentance. True followers are those who orient their lives around Yeshua, the living Torah, and follow in his ways. This idea of two paths, one that leads to righteousness and one that leads to destruction, is also reflected in many early Jewish texts. You see this idea all the time. There are two paths, and you have to choose one. It's like in the Matrix, right? There's the blue pill and the red pill. One of them is the... Is the pill that's going to lead to enlightenment, to understanding. And the other one will just keep you in the dark, right? But this whole concluding section is interrelated. It is all concluding instructions in Yeshua's sermon about how to be a wise disciple. So it's basically saying you cannot just go around just assuming good about everything or just living in a world of emotion, Instead, you have to use wisdom as a disciple. And now it's going to give you applications of how to use that wisdom, right? That not all paths are holy paths. So what are the holy paths? Let's go on to now it says, okay, use this discernment to beware of false prophets in verse 15. They come to you wearing sheep's clothing, but underneath they are hungry wolves. Yeshua is now using this opening principle about the narrow gate towards false prophets. Just because someone claims to be a prophet does not mean they really are. And we even see this in the Torah, right? In Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, it reads, But if a prophet presumptuously speaks a word in my name, which I didn't order him to say, or if he speaks in the name of other gods, then that prophet must die. You may be wondering, how are we to know if a word has not been spoken by God? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of Adonai and the prediction does not come true that is the word is not fulfilled then Adonai did not speak that word the prophet who said it spoke presumptuously you have nothing to fear from him it's pretty harsh in saying that the person must die that might not be the way that we would handle it today but the point is we have to use discernment every time you flip on the television every time you have a conversation there are people that all claim to speak in the name of God what I'm not saying is that I, I'm not saying that I don't believe people can hear from God. What I'm saying is that we have to be careful because everybody believes that they know what God wants, right? And we have to be very careful about speaking in the name of God. Not that we can't use wisdom and that we can't use discernment, and I'm not to say that there are not gifts of prophecy or that there are prophets. In fact, this warning is even to us in a section of prophecy by the Apostle Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak while the others weigh what is said. I grew up in a very charismatic world in which if somebody claimed to have a word and they just got up and gave it, you were supposed to just swallow the pill as though it's true. Never once, even though I was raised with this stuff, did I realize and read that verse clearly that it says When somebody gives a word, the other prophets in the congregation judge the word to make sure that that word was really from God. I think so often we just assume, well, if somebody said it and that person is fill in the blank, then, wow, that must be from God and that's what I have to do. And again, I'm not talking about trusting leadership. I'm talking about that God has encouraged us to give us wisdom, that we're not supposed to be lemmings, In fact, this is what Paul does. He praises the synagogue in Berea. I love this, and I always refer to it because it's something that I love. And when the synagogue in Berea, if you're not familiar with that story, that Paul goes into the synagogue in Berea, and he speaks a message. And what most people overlook is that these people were not judgmental. And nobody actually even questioned what it says. When it talks about the synagogue in Berea, it says they heartily welcomed his message, yet they went home to check the scriptures to make sure that what he said was true. And Paul doesn't say, how dare you? He never questions them on this. He never says, you should trust me because I don't know if you've heard of me, but I'm kind of a big deal. (laughs) He never consults himself as though I have the final authority. Instead, he praises them for the fact that they didn't just only welcome his message. Yes, they welcomed his message, but he but he gave them praise because they went back to make sure that even what Paul himself was saying lined up with scripture lined up with the word of god you judge a free by the fruit using discernment which is what yeshua then goes on to explain in verse 16 you will recognize you will recognize them who are them In the context, what is he talking about? The false prophets or really false leaders, right? And yes, you can apply this to all kinds of of other contexts, but but the specific context that Paul is talking about is when he says them. He was just talking about false prophets. and He says, you will know them by their fruits. Can people pick grapes from a thorn bush or figs from thistles? Likewise, every healthy tree produces good fruit, but a poor tree produces bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, or a poor tree good fruit. Any tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire, so you will recognize them by their fruit. We live in a world where people like to apply upon themselves all kinds of labels, right? But the world of Yeshua and the world of the Bible is that actions speak louder than words, as I was saying earlier. Yeshua says, you will know a tree by the fruit that it produces. This is why in another passage in a parallel gospel, we read about the cursing of the fig tree. And why did, most people miss the point. Why did Yeshua curse the fig tree? It was a fig tree that did not produce figs. <laughs> if it had no figs, it's not a fig tree. And he was using that, not that Yeshua went around you know, cursing trees, But he was making an application. Yeshua didn't have anything against trees, right? (laughs) He's the creator. Instead, he was using a poor, unhealthy tree as an illustration of poor and unhealthy disciples. He's saying, you can go around, you can call yourself any kind of fruit tree if you want to, but if you have no fruit to back up your words, it means nothing. And you know what means nothing to Yeshua? means you'll be cast into the lake of fire, right? (laughs) Sounds harsh, but that's the language that Yeshua uses. This principle of judging by the fruit then is applied to false leaders determining who is a true follower of Yeshua. He goes on in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform any miracles in your name? Then I will tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Spiritual deception is our personal responsibility. Just as Paul praised the synagogue in Berea, so I encourage each and every one of you just because we, it gets spoken from the Bema doesn't mean that you shouldn't be using discernment yourself. I take this very seriously, and I am very careful about what I say from this Bema, because I know I'll be held responsible for what I say. But am I perfect? No. <laughs> so I encourage you to even what I say. It should be weared fairly. It should, you should look at what Scripture says. What is an understanding of collective community? There are different ways to understand and to use discernment in order to understand if something is correct. So now Yeshua is going to shift really quickly as we conclude this chapter. And he went from saying you need to use discernment against these bad things, but now he's going to say, what does, we know that those are not true followers, right? He just said that. That those who are false prophets, those who, uh, you know, go around using labels but don't have fruit to back them up, these are not true followers. But then the question is, well, then what is a true follower? And this is answered in verse 24. So everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, remember, actions are fruit. They go along with your faith, right? Remember that there is no, in the Bible, this dichotomy of law versus grace Doesn't exist, right? That rather, like Paul, I mean, like uh, James writes, you ask me about my faith, and I'll show you my faith by what I do, right? Not that we can't, you know, not that uh, faith is not important. You have to have faith, but you have to have something that backs up your faith. So, verse 24, verse 25, the rain fell, the rivers flooded. The winds blew and beat against the house, but it didn't. uh, Actually, let me back up here for a second. So everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible person who built their house on bedrock. The rain fell, the rivers flooded, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it didn't collapse because its foundation was on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be... Like a foolish person who built their house on sand. The rain fell, the rivers flooded, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it collapsed. And its collapse was horrendous. We have to have a faith of substance that's not built on feelings or emotions, although that can play a part, but is based on discernment and wisdom and understanding that's built on scripture, about on a solid foundation, on the words of the Torah. Because when everything comes against it, it will be able to stand. Martin Buber in his Tales of, the Has- in, uh, not in Tales of the Hasidim in one of his other books relates a Hasidic story. It's a teaching on why do we say, the Lord our God and the God of our ancestors, right? When we open the Amidah, we go through each of these patriarchs, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in other prayers, we say, Adonai Eloheinu v'Elohai Avotenu, the Lord our God and the God of our ancestors. And so the question comes, why do we say the Lord our God and the God of our ancestors? Isn't that redundant? Wouldn't it just make more sense to say Lord my God or just say Lord our God? Why why the redundancy? And the answer is this. There are some people whose faith is just personal. The Lord my God, right? And it can be strong in the sense that it's something that is real to you, but it has no foundation. If it's only real to you, real to you, but it hasn't been tested by anything or isn't rooted to anything, then it's easily shakable. But then there's also those people who it's, Lord, our God. It's like it's the God of my ancestors. Eh, it's not really my thing. It was my family's thing, right? It's the God of my ancestors, and that can be rooted. But at the same time, it's not personal. You haven't taken it, you haven't made it a personal commitment. And so the idea that the rabbis say is the reason why I say the Lord our God and the God of our ancestors is that this is the most healthy, solid faith. It's a faith that is rooted, that goes back, that has a foundation. And yet it's the same thing in which you have now taken it personally. You have now said, this is my own. The God of my ancestors is my God. Right? And this is the healthy faith that cannot be shaken, the Lord our God and the God of my ancestors. Those who are true followers of Yeshua are those who are able to use wisdom and discernment to establish the foundations of their faith. And in the closing two verses, Yeshua states when Yeshua, or it states, When Yeshua had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at the way he taught. For he was not instructing them like their Torah teachers, but as one who had authority himself. And then we read, if you were to go to the next chapter, because remember there were no chapter and verse breaks when all of this was written. The very next verse says, After Yeshua had come down from the hill, large crowds began to follow him. So this is the conclusion of the sermon. And we know that, right? Because when a few weeks ago, when we started the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters ago, it says, he went up to the top of the hill and he began to give them instruction. And the word of instruction is the word Torah, right? And then now it says, when he had finished, everybody was amazed. And then the next verse that we'll read again next week is, then he came down the hill and people began to follow him. Because this is still early in Yeshua's work. Throughout these last three chapters, Yeshua gave a halachic discourse, a parallel to the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Here, Yeshua, as the Messiah, is the second Moses. Remember back in Deuteronomy when Moses himself said, there's a prophet that's going to come after me who is greater than I am? You're supposed to listen to him. But also, Yeshua is an embodiment of Israel. He's one man Israel. So Yeshua is both the lawgiver and the people, the embodiment of the people who receive it. And it's also interesting that it says in this last verse, which I love, when he was not, uh, for he was not instructing them like the Torah teachers, but as one who had authority himself. What does this mean? In Judaism, if you want to say something with authority, what is, how do you declare authority in Judaism? You quote somebody else, right? <laughs> if I want to sound very authoritative and very rabbinic, I say, Rabbi so-and-so said, A equals B, right? <laughs> uh, but, Rabbi so, but other rabbis so-and-so said, but C equals D. And then all the uh, rabbis agreed, and so it's A. <laughs> the, the point is, in Judaism, whenever you have authority in the earliest, in the earliest rabbinic texts, the way that you establish authority is by saying, Rabbi so-and-so said. It establishes authority, right? This has already been decided, and I'm just communicating that. When does Yeshua ever cite anybody else? He never does. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, you have heard that it, has, it was said. And again, I mentioned and showed before how this was a common halachic, a, a common legal way of referring and clarifying halachic instructions. And Yeshua says, you have heard it said, but I say it's this. He doesn't have to cite any other rabbis or whatever in order to support his point. The point is he establishes that I have the authority to make the decision on what this is. I don't need a group. I don't need to quote another source. If I say this is what it is, this is what it is. And this is why people are shocked. This is why people said, wow, gewalt, he teaches as one, who has authority himself. When we began this section on the Sermon on the Mount, we discussed how one of the expectations of Messiah within Jewish tradition is that they would be the ultimate halachic decisor. As just one quick example, we even saw this. We just went through Hanukkah. And in the Maccabees, when they rededicate the temple and they're repurifying the temple... Remember that the altar had been defiled, right? That there were uh, pigs that were sacrificed on the altar and there were all kinds of holy, uh, horrible things that happened in, in the holy place. And so what did the Maccabees do with that altar? They tore it down. They took it apart piece by piece. But what do you do with a holy thing that's been defiled but it was holy? You can't just throw it away. So the, according to the books of Maccabees, it says that they took the stones and they placed them on a, you know, on a certain place on the temple mount until the prophet would come who would tell them what to do with them. Yeah. Who is the prophet they were waiting for? Yeshua. Yeshua. There was a machloket, means there was a, a halachic disagreement of what you do with holy things that have been defiled from the temple. This is from the temple. This isn't just from your house, right? This is from the temple. This was a holy thing that's been defiled, so we can't use it, but we can't just throw it away, so what do we do? The rabbis couldn't agree. So they said, well, instead, what we're going to do, and believe it or not, there's a lot of decisions like this in Judaism of saying, we don't know, so we're going to wait till the Mashiach comes, wait till the Messiah comes, and he'll tell us what the final answer will be. The good news is, we have a halakhic decisor, and he's the one who gives us the words of the Torah in its proper understanding. And this idea, even though, for example, other Jewish texts are not necessarily specifically referring to Yeshua, this concept of Messiah as the halakhic decisor, the ultimate halakhic decisor, is not foreign. In fact, I'm just going to give you one example from one midrash that says, "The Holy One, blessed be He, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, will sit and express, will sit and expound the new Torah, which He will give through the Messiah." By new Torah means the secrets and the mysteries of the Torah that have remained hidden until now. It does not refer to another Torah. Heaven forbid, for surely the Torah which he gave us through Moses our teacher, peace be upon him, is the eternal Torah, but the revelation of her hidden secrets is called the new Torah. Right? That the, word, the purpose of the Messiah will be to clarify these halakhic ambiguities. Narrow is the gate. Yeshua began this section. We need to remember that it's so important to be wise disciples, to be wise followers of Yeshua, to use discernment, that not every person who calls himself a prophet or a teacher or a rabbi or a pastor or a priest, whatever the title, and I'm not judging titles. What I'm saying is that you can't necessarily judge that every has, everyone has a right motive. And even people who might have a right motive might still be incorrect. And so we have to use wisdom and discernment. We have to make sure that, number one, the tree produces fruit. And we have to make sure that that fruit lines up with the words of Torah, the words of all scripture. We need to judge by fruit. To not just simply go with what tickles our ears, but instead using our hearts and minds and prayer in order to discern with whether this is truly of God. Because we want to be true followers, true followers of Messiah that do His work, that do His will, that prepare the world for the return of our Messiah so that when that time comes, we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And ultimately, we can be assured of this because of the authority of Yeshua himself. Yeshua was more than just a great prophet. He was great, more than great, just a great individual. And he was more than just a messianic type figure. He was the Messiah himself. The Son of God. Avinu Sheba our Father in heaven. We come before you and we pray, God, that we would be true followers of you. That this synagogue would be a, known, a place known for being a house of true disciples. Where people would know us by our love. That people would know us by the fruit that we produce. That people would recognize that it's not merely a matter of words, but of power. And that power does not come from us, but from God. God, help us to follow in your ways. Help us to do your will as our will. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. So please rise. Baruch Please rise.